Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. Far too often in today's world, we either hear or read of some climate disaster, whether it is flooding, tornadoes, hurricanes, typhoons, or whatever other ecological disaster we can think of. In September of 2017, a Category 5 hurricane, Irma, struck Barboda, forcing residents to evacuate to the neighboring island of Antigua in rendering Barbuda uninhabitable. Only 10 short days later, another hurricane, Maria, passed just south of Antigua, battering it with wind and rain on its way to also becoming a Category 5 storm. Antigua and Barbudo's Director of the Department of Environment, Ambassador Diane Black Lane, told the New York Times that the carbon output of developed nations is a significant cause of the intense storms. But she said the island nation is too small to improve the problem on its own. Instead, she offered a very surprising plan of action. Black Lane told reporter Michael Barbero, and I quote, We pray. We are God-fearing people, and we believe in forgiveness, and we believe in praying, and we believe that God will intercede on our behalf. I am telling you, prayer is powerful. End of quote. The Lord does promise to hear her cries. Does not the psalmist state in Psalm 55, verses 16 through 17, As for me, I will call out to God, and the Lord will deliver me during the evening, morning, and noontime. I will lament and moan, and he will hear me. So if God hears those cries, should his people not also cry out? Too many Christians and non-Christians think about climate change as primarily a political or economic issue. But it is also a spiritual issue that requires a biblical approach. The Bible has a lot to say about human-caused climate change. The Old Testament in particular chronicles God's efforts to order a society's energies to his glory and documents that society's failure to abide by that order. Biblical teaching should lead Christians to anticipate human-caused climate change. It should incline them 
to respect the evidence of today's climate crisis, even if they come to different conclusions about how to interpret that evidence. And perhaps most importantly, the Bible teaches and shows that climate crises often have a reformational purpose. A life-given climate comes of God's goodness. On this, Christians of all climate change persuasions agree. Some even cite as a primary argument that a good God would never allow the climate to go bad. But weather is clearly vulnerable to human activity. This lesson appears as early as the Garden of Eden. Genesis introduces Eden as a place gifted with a favorable climate. Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 state, No plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the earth. There was not a man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Genesis also introduces humankind's relationship with God as stewards of his world a a few short verses later. For do we not read in verses 15 through 19 the following? Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature became its name. Still later in Genesis, we see that human sin causes everything we steward to suffer, including God's gift of the climate. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 tells us, To Adam he said, Because you have listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. The ground is cursed for your sake. You will eat from it with much labor all the days of your life. It will yield thorns and thistles to you, and you will eat the herb of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Apostle Paul states in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, for the creation waits with eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be delivered 
from the bondage of decay into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. These themes continue in the Exodus narrative. God delivered Israel from Egypt to another land identified right away by its good climate in Deuteronomy chapter 11. For Canaan's good weather to continue, however, the people had to follow God's ways. Deuteronomy 11 verses 13 and 14 state, So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. Among the laws God gave Israel, he included land and climate management laws and rules to guide their climate stewardship. Christians can still glean wisdom from these laws today. One of the most striking environmental regulations in the Old Testament is the Sabbath year land fallow law found in Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. Without modern fertilizer, farmers at the time, and many farmers still today, had to replenish soil nutrients by crop rotation or by letting fields go uncultivated for a season. Failing to do so leads to soil depletion, lack of plant growth, loss of moisture retention, and trouble with evaporation and rainfall. Ancient Israelites were to leave their fields fallow every seventh year. Leviticus warns that ignoring this principle would lead to this hardened soil and loss of rainfall. It states, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. Now you can read those phrases in Leviticus chapter 26 in verses 14 down through 35. Yes, the regulation had societal and spiritual functions. Carving out a recurring occasion for physical rest and for trust in God's generous provision. But it also established a relationship between soil depletion and rainfall loss that modern science recognizes. Its presence in Israel's law indicates an understanding that human activity can directly impact the climate and that God expects his people to moderate their activity accordingly. The following law 
did not block land use altogether, but it did constrain its economic production to protect the environment. Failure to heed these laws produced the greatest ecological disaster in the United States' history. It produced the Great Dust Bowl of the late 1920s through the early 1930s. Biblical Israel lacked the scientific sophistication to explore climate mechanics beyond such basic insights. But even so, Israel was taught to regard the climate as requiring stewardship. Further land and climate guidance was built into Israel's festival calendar. Three pilgrimage feasts formed the background of Israel's calendar, each requiring a national assembly in Jerusalem. Their timing and ceremonies guided Israel's stewardship of the land in keeping with its seasons. The first was the Passover season. It marked the transition from the rainy season to spring, when the barley harvest was ready. The Feast of Weeks occurred seven weeks later, the time when spring gave way to summer, and the wheat harvest was ready. The final pilgrimage, the Feast of Booths, marked the end of summer, when summer fruits were ready, the next rainy season was at hand. These festivals taught Israel to labor and worship responsively to the seasons. Israel also learned how to use the wealth their harvests produced. Households brought tithes and other offerings from each seasonal harvest to the assemblies, like we read in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Some of the tithes were eaten during the festivals, but much of this income was placed in storehouses to support ongoing Levitical welfare for the vulnerable, as you would see in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. Through this seasonal calendar, Israel was taught to steward the climate by ensuring the harvested wealth blessed all the land's inhabitants, including the landless, and the vulnerable. Israel was told to expect their good climate to continue as they observed these laws. Reading some snippets from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 24, listen to some of these words. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, the Lord will strike you with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust 
and powder. It will calm down from the skies until you are destroyed. Those festivals, of course, were specific to the seasons in the crops of Canaan. The body of Christ, which spans the globe from Arctic to tropical climates today, is not under or supposed to continue the practices of the Mosaic Law. However, Christians are still exhorted to learn some practical wisdom from the law's insight. And what happens when people ignore that wisdom? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Now all these things happened to them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. He also writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The land and climate management laws of the Old Testament can still help Christians appreciate the importance of climate stewardship today and the climatic damage caused by failing to steward God's earth and its produce righteously. When a land does experience climate damage, God taught Israel to respond by asking why. When the land is a burning waste of salt and sulfur, all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to the land? Why this fierce burning anger? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 23 and 24. Not every climate crisis is a work of judgment. The sufferings of Job included freak weather events in Job chapter 1, verses 16 and 19. Though he was innocent before God, yet even Job responded, responded with self-examination. Self-examination is an entirely Christian response to climate change and, when needed, can lead to moral and economic reform. We see this pattern modeled by the Old Testament prophets. The most dramatic example is the flood in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. God sent the deluge as a direct response to human sin. Noah took practical steps like building an ark. He also warned others, calling for repentance in Second Timothy. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. After the flood, Noah received God's promise. Genesis 8.22 records this promise for us. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Many Christians have taken that promise to mean that God will never allow climate change after Noah. 
But that is not what God said. God chose Moses, who came along many centuries later, to deliver the extensive warnings about climate instability. So while God's promise to Noah sets a limit on climate judgments, it does not justify climate neglect. Biblical happenings long after Moses only confirm that. In the days of King Ahab, God sent another multi-year drought. But once Elijah led the people in repentance, the sky grew black with clouds, and the wind rose, and the heavy rain started falling. 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18 tells us. The prophet Isaiah tied climate instability to greed and abuse of the poor in his day. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 32. The prophet Samuel cited unseasonal rains as a warning in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 17 through 18. The Psalms point to the good order of the seasons as dependent upon the good order of the community in Psalms chapters 65 and 104. And the judgments attending Christ's promised return to the earth at the second advent also include climatic disasters, just as you would read in Mark 13.8, in Revelation 6.8, in Revelation 8.7, in Revelation 11.19, and Revelation 16, verses 17 through 21. The moral runs through both Old and New Testaments. A good climate is a gift. Indeed, but it is a worsening climate that should prompt us to ask where we might be going wrong. Because according to scripture, climate change is an expected instrument of divine humbling. We should be open to the evidence that it is happening now. According to NASA, global temperatures have risen 2.1 degrees Fahrenheit since 1880. That may not sound like very much, but it is enough to melt 428 billion tons of polar ice every year. This contributes to global sea levels rising 3.4 millimeters annually. Changes like these cause more severe storms, droughts, floods, and other natural disasters. Events we increasingly see in news headlines and in our own communities. The Bible does not tell us specifically about today's climate change or what is causing it. But we do not need that kind of precision from the Bible. Scripture is sufficient in its reports about God's works with his people of old and preserving those lessons to inform our response to comparable situations today. That includes the Bible's teachings on the climate.
Once we recognize that climate change is often a means of divine reproof, the tools of science offer two kinds of help in our response. Today, God's divine reproof is allowing humanity to reap the consequences of its own conduct. He does not bring directly ecological disasters, but he allows our conduct to follow and have the logical consequences result. Paul the Apostle to the body of Christ writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, For he who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap Ionian life. First thing we need to understand is that science helps us identify areas of human activity. God in his providence is compelling us to give special examination to industrial scale carbon emissions and that have been identified as the most significant factor contributing to rising global temperatures. This finding puts a providential spotlight on modern industrial practices. While secular policymakers focus on ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the body of Christ should address matters of pride, greed, creation abuse, and other sins that may be connected to some of these industrial practices. Sciences, in conjunction with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, will help us recognize areas on which to focus spiritual renewal. Second, scientific evidence for climate change helps awaken unbelievers to the need to amend our ways. Many of those who would resist the call for reforms based on divine accountability will be more inclined to support such reforms when the need is also scientifically demonstrable. Christians should not need climate science to motivate our embrace of climate stewardship. But having scientific data strengthens the motivation of unbelievers to pursue better climate stewardship. B and science are not enemies. And climate policy is an area where Christian witness and scientific insight can collaborate productively. Today's conditions are more stark than past climatic shifts. According to data collected by the U.S. government agencies, but climate changes have happened before. For instance, in the late Middle Ages, temperatures began to cool. During this period, known as the Little Ice Age, winters grew colder and longer. Responses were varied, but many across Europe turned to scripture. In his book, Nature's Mutiny, historian Philip Blom writes, and I quote, Theological interpretations of climatic events were popular and frequently widely disseminated in print. Indeed, weather sermons became a minor literary genre of their own. End of quote. 
For example, the Catholic reformer, John Calvin, addressed crop failures amid weather changes in his day in his commentary on Genesis chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. I quote, By the increasing wickedness of men, the remaining blessing of God is gradually diminished and impaired, and certainly there is danger, unless the world repent, that a great part of men should shortly perish through hunger and other dreadful miseries. The inclemency of the air, frost, thunders, unseasonable rains, drought, hail, and whatever is disorderly in the world are the fruits of sin. End of quote. Calvin was not one to mince words. And although there's not much I agree with John Calvin on, I happen to believe he was fully accurate in this statement. Weather hymns were another feature of the age. Blom writes, for example, Paul Gerhardt's 17th century hymn, titled, Occasioned by Great and Unseasonable Rain, says this, and I quote from this hymn, The elements over all the land are stretching out against us the hand, and troubles from the sea arise, and troubles come down from the skies. End of quote. One result of the little ice age was a turning to the Lord. In fact, climate change is an often overlooked component of the Reformation. This example should encourage us today to likewise acknowledge that even though climate change may or may not be happening, we can respond with spiritual renewal. Not all responses to the little ice age were good. Without wisdom, interpreting climatic events as divine reproof can lead to something ugly. And we see that happening today with much of the climate policies being forced upon the American society through a government that is totally godless. We saw years ago that period of the Little Ice Age seeing a sharp rise in witch trials. Something like 110,000 witch trials took place across Europe, half of which led to executions. We see it today throughout Western world with stupid policies like eradicating gas stoves in your home. We see it every time people try to make reforms without seeking the scriptures to make those reforms. Such tragedies are a caution against misappropriating the theological implications of climate change. Better is the more sober, biblically-centered way to approach it. One way or another, the changing climate will bring changes to human societies. 
Whether or not God is reproving specific sins by allowing humanity to reap the consequences of our actions through the increasing storms, droughts, and other consequences that will afflict vast segments of humanity. And as is often the case, the vulnerable will suffer most from the failures of the powerful. The body of Christ right now is here on this earth to promote the work of redemption. And we have a door open to us in such times as these. Let us not risk squandering this opportunity for witness by denying or downplaying climate change. The United Nations recently declared a UN decade on ecosystem restoration, beginning in the year 2021. From 2021 to 2030, public and private cooperatives will endeavor to recover 350 million hectares of degraded land and remove up to 26 gigatons of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. There is no reason the body of Christ cannot have equally bold visions to reach the lost in response to climate change. But our labors should aim for social and spiritual reformation alongside ecological renewal and ultimately life-changing words to those who do not have a savior. Science can highlight the mechanics of climate change, and politicians can try to regulate behavior. It is up to the body of Christ to touch the conscience and bring a redemptive call to culture. Changing individuals' lives by presenting the evangel changes conduct. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the first four verses, tell us how an individual can come to Christ and be in a relationship with him that will totally transform the way they think and do things. And it's simple. To have salvation with God is as easy as believing that Christ died for your sins that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Simply believing and trusting that seals you by the Holy Spirit into a relationship with God himself. And that relationship can never be undone. And as you begin your Christian journey, you begin to develop a moral character that is molded upon your father's moral character. And that produces real change. That produces a different way of thinking. I want to close this podcast with a short passage from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. 
the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. This statement given to the nation of Israel is a beautiful little statement dealing with changing environment. Having having a relationship with God based off of his death, burial, and resurrection will produce behavioral changes and an importance of our stewardship. Let us not neglect it. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.